Hey there, and welcome to season two of Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. You guys, I am so psyched that this podcast has been met with rave reviews, lots of engagement in our Food Biz Wiz Facebook group, and tons of messages to me over on Instagram and through email. I'm so grateful for your support of it, for sharing it, and for the encouragement to keep on going. Thank you. So to kick off season two of the podcast, I'm answering your questions rapid fire style in this episode. In case you missed it, I asked my Instagram audience in my feed and on my stories, as well as in our Food Biz Wiz Facebook group, what burning questions you had about growing your packaged food business. You guys showed up, submitted some great ones, and you kept me on my toes as I thought through all of the responses that I wanted to give you. So let's jump right in. I'm answering your questions on finding a co-packer, testing for shelf life, selling online, selling in store, managing production, connecting with buyers, and a lot more. Here we go. You're listening to Food Biz Wiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. Hey, before we jump in, I want to make sure that you've grabbed my free retail roadmap, a workbook that outlines my nine steps to building a brand that flies off the shelf. If you're a producer of a packaged product in the food industry, you are going to want this. I'll add it to today's show notes, so make sure you check out that PDF when you're done listening. Thanks. All right, let's do this. Like I mentioned, this is going to be a rapid fire episode, and I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. If you like the style of this, let me know, and I'll work in another episode just like this in the future, all right? So before I get into your questions, I do want to mention that I am keeping the names of who submitted these questions anonymous. I got a lot of private DMs and messages with questions, and I want to respect your privacy and not call you out on your business challenges. But at the same time, I'll just say that the more that you ask your community and network for help, the faster you're going to advance in your business. I want you, I want to encourage you to actually comment on my posts and stories when I ask you what you're working on, struggling with, or feeling at any given time. I mean, I wouldn't be asking unless I was truly curious. So in the future, don't hold back. If you're feeling hesitant at all, don't hold back. The more you share about what you're working on, the more support your fellow business owners and I can give you. In fact, that's one of my favorite aspects of Retail Ready, the support support and community that my students give one another in our private group. It's incredible how much knowledge and advice you can get just by replying to a comment thread. Okay, so that's the end of my rant. Let's get to these great questions. Diving right in. Number one, what is the best way to get your brand picked up by grocery stores? Oh, I love this question so much, and it's so near and dear to my heart. So for those of you who are new listeners, you might not know that I'm a former grocery buyer, head of grocery, and retail store manager. Former. All of those are former. I am now a food industry consultant and a 
digital course creator of retail ready. So I, when I was in my buying role, I used to get dozens of new product pitches each week. And I had to filter through inquiries to figure out which products were the best fit for my shelves. So that question, the what is the best way to get your brand picked up by grocery stores is right in my wheelhouse. It's exactly what we cover in Retail Ready. And we spend hours thinking about this, tweaking and fine-tuning our students' strategies here. But let me give you a high-level response because I love this question so much. So on a very basic level, when you want to get your product on a store shelf, you reach out to the buyer and you pitch your product to them. I know it's easier said than done. And of course, that's where the strategy comes into play. But that's the very basic of how it works. You reach out, they assess your brand, and they decide to carry your products or not. But here's the really important thing. And it's one that emerging brands forget all the time. You can't forget the real motivation driving the buyer's decision to carry you or not. It is so crucial that you remember why a buyer would bring in your product line. It is to help them meet their goals, right? So a buyer's goals are always related to selling more product in your category or increasing margin in your category or meeting their sales and financial benchmarks. That is it. So sure, of course, your product needs to be delicious and your story needs to be compelling and you need to appear really professional on all fronts, but all of those things are subjective. Just because you think your product is the most delicious ever or you think that it's compelling that you source organic fruit from within 100 miles of your kitchen, that buyer doesn't necessarily care about that. They want to know objectively, that you are going to bring high sales to your category. That's it. So back to that original question of how you get your brand on store shelves. To summarize it, you've got to make that buyer believe that objectively, you are the best fit for your category and convey that to them in a succinct pitch. All right. Okay, next up. And I'm going to give a shout out on this one to the woman who submitted this question because I know she won't care that I mention her name. This next question was submitted by Kat Fields-White, the CEO of San Diego Markets, the largest farmer's market in San Diego, as well as the host of the Intense Business Conference for makers of products sold at the farmer's market. This is a really awesome conference that happens each winter down in San Diego. I spoke there last year. Um, And she's also the host of Tent... Tent Talk, love that name, a podcast for makers who sell at farmer's markets. I'm going to make sure to link to the conference and the podcast in the show notes. It's really great. If you enjoy Food Biz Whiz, I'm pretty certain that you are going to love Tent Talk. Okay, anyway, so Kat asked, she said, we have a lot of clients in search of co-packers with reasonable minimums after a few that she knows have, have closed recently. She says, are they unicorns or do they exist? All right. Well, Kat, this is a great question and I'm happy to answer it for you. The long and the short of it is that, yes, it can be time consuming and frustrating and challenging to find a small scale co-packer. I know, Kat, you understand why that is, but for other listeners who maybe haven't gone down this rabbit hole yet, 
I'll just remind you that it's a lot of work to get production dialed in with a co-packer. They have to ensure that they have the right equipment for your production, that their ingredient sourcing is in line with yours, that your recipe can scale. I mean, recipes created for making batches of 12 jars of jam at a time don't necessarily translate if you're trying to make 100 gallons of jam at a time, right? So anyways, there's a lot of setup time and trial and error for a co-packer to get your recipe just right. They then need to trust again that you're going to keep up your end of the deal and have consistent production runs and pay your bills to them. The truth of it is that small producers often have inconsistent sales and inconsistent cash flow. And frankly, that's not so appealing for co-packers to deal with, right? So the Good news is, so we understand that, right? Like why a co-packer is less inclined to work with a smaller maker. But the good news is that some do exist. I have a few clients who use Forage Kitchen up here in the Bay Area for small batch co-packing, as well as Preserve Farm Kitchens up in Petaluma. Plus, I know of a handful of other ones in the Bay Area alone. So I would say if you are looking for small batch co-packing, there are a few places to start. First, Partner Slate, a website and co-packing directory online, is a great first step. I will link to that in the show notes as well. It's great for finding a co-packer that fits your needs. You can sort and filter on the platform. And Matt, the founder, is so dedicated to supporting food entrepreneurs and helping them find these key partnerships. So Partner Slate is a great one. Secondly, this sounds obvious, but ask within your network. If you know a fellow food producer who doesn't actually produce themselves, get a recommendation directly from them. And then finally, similar but different, ask other producers who make similar products as yours if they would manufacture for you. So I've, I've had a gluten-free cookie client for a while, and he has his own kitchen, which is certified gluten-free, gluten like not an easy feat, right? So a gluten-free cinnamon bun company reached out to him and asked him to manufacture for them. And sure enough, he had the capacity and he had the staff to do it. And now he's making some extra income on the side. So make sure you're asking if there are producers who make similar but different products as your own, which products that aren't necessarily going to compete with yours on the shelf, but maybe use the same processing equipment, ask them. I mean, you don't know. You never know if they would say yes to producing for you. Okay, so I hope that helps, Kat. Thank you again for submitting your question. Okay, next up. I like this one. I like, gosh, I like all of these. <laughs> uh, next up, how do you effectively forecast production? Oh, okay. So forecasting production is so important for cash flow and inventory management. And it's really easy to feel like you're just shooting in the dark when it comes to pro projections. So it's important that you think through this because if your forecasting is too low, you obviously can't meet your consumer demands, right? You're running out of product. You're leaving money on the table. You're potentially losing consumers, losing customers, and risking those precious wholesale relationships. If you overestimate, on the other hand, though, you're sitting on a whole bunch of inventory, which, as you know, is the same as sitting on a whole bunch of cash 
And that gets really tough, right? Um, furthermore, you run the risk of that excess inventory expiring before you sell it. You're potentially paying excessive costs for storing that excess inventory, and you put a wrench in your cash flow. So neither scenario, either underestimating or overestimating, is good for the profitability of your business. So the key to forecasting production is to track your sales and notice patterns, trends, and cycles of product movement. If you're not already in production, it's a bit harder, right? Like you don't have sales history to go off of, but there are still a few ways that you can make a thoughtful estimate. You can ask other brands in your category what their average monthly or weekly sales look like. You can buy data on other brands and their movement. And you can do some Google searches on your category turn rate. Think about your production minimums, your lead time, your shelf life, and your estimated sales, and make an initial production plan that minimizes inventory that you're sitting on while still being, a still being able to fulfill your sales demands. So if you're already in production, obviously, it's a little bit easier. So like I said, track your sales. If you are increasing in sales by, say, 2% every month for the first six months, you can bet that trend might continue. Or if you're finding that you sold, let's say, extremely well in the fourth quarter last year, but then had a downturn in January, this happens to a lot of brands, you can bet that pattern is going to repeat itself as well. The numbers don't lie. You should be running your sales reports bi-weekly, at least, to watch for patterns and cycles, which will allow you to predict your future production needs, taking into account your lead time for, for a production run. Okay, that was a good question. I like that one. Um, maybe we should do a whole episode on production schedules. Okay, so next question. Okay, I am looking to make professional labels for my product as I'm going into retail and I need something way better and more attractive than what I have right now. I tried to do it myself because I'm a small entrepreneur and I wanted to save money. Gosh, this is so common. But big mistake as I realized uh, going into retail is not like the farmer's market and people only see the packaging first. Yeah, the, you don't have any interaction with them, right? Um, Allie, do you have a company that you can recommend to help me out with this? All right, good question. So thank you for submitting this. And first off, congrats on moving from farmer's markets into retail. You are so, so wise to realize that selling at a farmer's market is totally different than selling off a retail shelf. When you're on that store shelf, your packaging needs to be the one thing that captures that busy shopper's intention. So you've got to go all in on creating a brand here. I have a short list of companies that I always refer my retail ready students to, but if you're just looking to get started, maybe the first time you're investing in your brand, I'd say that you should look at other packaging in the food industry that you really love and figure out who did their design work. There are so many designers out there, and just because I love a designer does not mean that their style is going to resonate with you. So first things first, I always suggest making a Pinterest board. That works really well here. But start gathering inspiration and looking at other design, excuse me, looking at other brands whose design you really love. 
and then figure out who did those designs. So often the designers will have their work listed on their website, right? And as part of their portfolio. So you can just do a Google search for it without ever even having to ask the producer themselves. Of course, if you have a relationship with a producer, reach out. If they love their designer, they should be more than happy to put in a a recommendation for you. So if, for example, let's say you really love Oli Pop's cute can design, I do, a quick Google search of Oli Pop packaging designer brings it right up. I know because I've done it. So I do see people making mistakes here with the branding and the packaging time and time again. So I want to touch on, I want to touch on the mistakes to avoid. So one of the biggest ones is working with someone who doesn't have experience in the food and beverage industry. It's a whole different ball game designing a jar of almond butter than it is designing a business card or a website. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone who has experience putting their work on products that end up on a physical shelf. So often I see young brands, and just like this person who submitted the question said, like, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm bootstrapping my business, I don't have the cash to do this. And then I hear something like, but my cousin's a website designer, or my college roommate studied graphic design, and they said that they'll they'll do it for me. And this is really where I find brands making being regretful after they've invested in a designer who doesn't have experience in food and beverage packaging design. Okay, like I said, it's a whole different ballgame when you start designing food and bev versus designing websites. Okay, so from there, I always remind emerging brands that a logo is not a brand. A label is not a brand. So sure, you can hire someone on Fiverr to create a logo for you or to design a really quick label, but that is not a brand. A brand encompasses your visual elements like colors and fonts and logo and label, but also your brand voice and your copywriting style. A brand encompasses your values, your company mission, the way you interact with customers, the retail outlets you sell through, and on and on and on. It's your company's personality. It's a pro- it's a promise that you make to consumer consumers. A more advanced designer builds you a brand, not just pretty packaging. And brands sell and products don't, okay? So I know you might not have tens of thousands of dollars to spend on design work. I mean, I get it. And I am not telling you that you need to spend that much on a brand. But what I will say is that my clients and retail-ready students who invest in doing the branding work and realize how important it is to have a solid playbook are the ones who find success faster and more consistently. So if I were going to start a food business, branding is the number one thing that I would put my resources towards. Okay, so let's take a quick break so I can catch my breath. I'm going to have a sip of water and I will be back to answer a question on getting feedback from buyers once your product is already on the shelf. Hang tight. Instead of having a sponsor for today's episode, I want to give you a freebie, my retail roadmap. This roadmap is essential for anyone launching or growing a packaged food product as it clearly outlines the difference between creating a product line that flies off the retail shelf versus one that just sits there. 
Find my free retail roadmap linked in today's show notes. You are going to love it. Okay, next up, we are about halfway through with these questions. So what is the best way to get feedback from a buyer once your product is on the shelf? The answer is simple. Ask them. (laughs) But above all, make it really easy for them to give you feedback. They don't have the time or the energy to do you a favor unless it's extremely easy for them to do. So remember, you both have the same goal, right? To sell more product. Reach out to one of your favorite buyers, your key buyers, and remind them that you have the same goal And that is why you're looking for feedback. Make it seem like a win for them when they give you feedback, right? They need to have have a compelling reason uh, why they would want to help you out here. So you could ask them for feedback in a really short five-question survey. Or you could ask them five questions in an email. Or you could ask them if they have five minutes for a phone call or five minutes next time you drop off a delivery. It's not that five is the magic number here, but it's key to keep your ask super, super short and ensure that you're asking the right questions so that you can actually make changes based on the responses that you get. So sit down right now and ask yourself, or before you reach out, before you ask for feedback, you need to sit down and ask yourself, what do you really want to know? What, what are you going to use this feedback for and design five or six questions that really get to the heart of that, okay? So if any of my retail-ready students are listening, I just did a video in our group about the best ways to ask for feedback so that you get responses that will actually make an impact on your business. I did it last week for you guys. Tag me in our Facebook group if you are listening to this and you're like, oh yeah, Allie, I want that, okay? So great question. I love I love that this person had the foresight to think about asking those key buyers on how your product is doing, all so that you can come together and achieve that common goal of selling more product. Okay, so next up, we have a question on shelf life testing. Someone asked, I have a beverage that I want canned and I want to get it shelf life tested. Can I get it tested before I get it canned? This is a great question, and frankly, it's one that I can't answer. (laughs) I'm not a food scientist, but here is the deal. Here's what I know. Your packaging affects your shelf life by providing a barrier between your food product and the outside environment, right? Like, that just makes sense. If you want to test for shelf life in particular, you are going to want to test it in the package that it's sold in. So labs and food science centers have an incredible ability to do an accelerated shelf life test, meaning you don't have to wait, say, three years to see if your beverage still tastes good in 2022, right? I wouldn't be surprised if there were labs who had the ability to mimic the canning process for you. So in short, while I'm not the best person to answer this food science question, I will tell you that I... I don't think all is lost. I absolutely think that you can find help here. And you're going to need to reach out to a food scientist or a lab facility and ask them directly. Okay, so we've got another beverage question. So I'm going to dive right into it. I really like this one. Uh, As I told you, I like all these questions. I feel like I've said it for every single question. So this one I got over Instagram and it is, 
Allie, do you recommend selling refrigerated beverages online? I like this question because I think we can we can sub in any product here, right? Like, Allie, do you recommend selling refrigerated dips online? Allie, do you recommend selling um, shelf-stable chips online? Whatever it is, right? Uh, there's a little bit of nuance with the refrigeration part, but... Let's let's get through this, okay? So I have a few gut responses to this question. First, how are you going to ship these refrigerated beverages directly to your consumers? I just want to know. I'm curious. So shipping refrigerated goods is typically expensive, especially if you're in glass, and it's logistically challenging for small brands. So if you have that figured out and you decide to proceed, I'll ask you if your audience is currently buying refrigerated drinks directly from their favorite brands online. Same thing, sub in any product that you're making. Is your audience currently buying your category of products online? If not, why not? And if not, how are you going to be the brand that changes their behavior? Changing consumer behavior is slow and it's expensive, and you've got to be really honest with yourself there. Who is going to buy refrigerated beverages directly from your website? I'm not saying it's no one. I just want to know who it is. If you can't name a single person, it's time to reconsider. So if you are still determined, I'd ask you next up, how good of an online marketer are you? It's not enough to build a website and post on Instagram a few times per month and expect to have a stable business. I'm going to be truthful with you guys. That's not going to happen. So when you decide to sell direct to consumer, you've essentially decided that you're going to spend your time and money on digital marketing. Unless you or someone on your team has in-depth knowledge, in-depth know-how of how to execute a digital marketing strategy, or someone on your team is willing to learn how to do this, or you are willing to hire someone to do this for your brand, you are going to be disappointed with your online sales. All of that might sound like I'm discouraging you from selling your product online. In this case, your refrigerated beverages online. And I'm not. I'm just asking you to set realistic expectations about what it would take to sell your product, refrigerated or not, online. Okay, hope that helps. I'm so curious how you guys are liking this episode. I'm sitting here recording it and I'm like, is this resonating? Do they have these problems? I wanna, I wanna know what you guys are thinking as you're, as you're listening in. Okay, so speaking of online sales, the next question is a big one and I got it, I tracked this. Over a dozen of you asked some version of the same exact question. And it is, how do I market and sell my products on Instagram? Okay, so I get questions like, how do I market my gluten-free cookies on Instagram? How do I sell my chocolate bars on Instagram? How do I sell my beef jerky on Instagram? How do I sell my coffee on Instagram? How do I sell my chips on Instagram? I mean, every, I feel like so many of you guys asked, how do I sell my products on Instagram. Clearly, I need to do an entire episode on this. I have it slotted for the future. I got you guys. But for now, I do want to respond. I I think Instagram is an amazing platform. I love Instagram. If you guys are following me on Instagram, you will see I am I'm on there a lot. I love connecting with brands on Instagram. I imagine some of you listening right now are like, oh yeah, I've been DM- DMing back and forth with you, Allie. Like I know you love Instagram. 
So I think it's such a powerful place to connect with your community, to tell a deeper story, and to share content that inspires and engages your audience. I see some brands using Instagram in a really authentic, inspiring way that's clearly working with them to you know build their audiences and drive online sales. I then see other brands. I see a lot of brands who are using Instagram poorly or inconsistently and frankly, ineffectively, which ends up leading to disappointment and distrust in the platform. This idea that Instagram won't work for me. I'm bad at Instagram and it won't work for me. And it ends up being a waste of your two most limited resources, your time and your money. So I have a few Retail Ready students who are doing an incredible job with Instagram, and I'm going to give them a little shout out because you might want to follow along and see what their, see what their style is and see what they're up to. I will link all of these in the show notes. So first up, Sauna with Diaspora. It's a brand who sells turmeric, whole cardamom pods, and soon to be chili peppers and black peppercorns. She does a great job balancing educating her consumers about spice trading, inspiring her consumers through recipes and selling her product, as well as shouting out other brands who use her turmeric. It's a win-win for everybody. I love her feed. It's also really colorful and beautiful. I also love Sylvie's with Just Dates Her Up. She does the same thing, educating her audience on the hidden risks of having a lifestyle that includes a lot of refined sugar, but at the same time, inspiring them to make really easy changes by incorporating her date syrup and her pomegranate syrup into their every day. She shares recipes, user content, fellow health-focused brands and products that she knows her consumers will love on her feed and in her stories. Sylvie's great with her stories. She shares content from her fans. She does a lot of like reposting of her fans' recipes. Um, and I just think it's such a great way to recognize your audience who is loving your product. And then lastly, another great example is Charlie of Element Shrub. He's another good one to follow. He he appeals to both the drinking crowd with his really beautiful cocktail recipes and really beautiful photography, but also those who are looking for mocktails. He doesn't make you feel like if you're if you're choosing to imbibe, you not to imbibe, you're left out. And he fills his feed with this balance of product shots and drink pictures and behind the scenes of his business. I think you guys would really love following him too. Okay, so like I said, I'm going to link those three in our show notes as well. And like I also said, there's no way I can possibly teach you all there is to know about using Instagram to sell your product online in this rapid fire episode. I mean, I couldn't even tell you all that there is to know about it in a single food biz whiz episode. It is potentially a huge part of your marketing strategy, and it's going to require thought and implementation and measuring your results. But that being said, I'm going to give you three tips on what I think is most important to focus on on Instagram. Okay, these are tips that I literally use myself. Okay, first up, tip number one, it is not about the number of followers that you have, and it's more about the depth of engagement you create. So what do I mean by this? Well, I'll just use an example. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have 5,000 followers who don't like and comment on your posts and never turn into purchasers? Or would you rather have 500 followers who actually respond to your posts and reply to your stories and cheer you on and purchase your product? 
The latter sounds much more appealing, right? So I want you to stop worrying about your follower count and start focusing on attracting the right audience who will actually engage with your brand and purchase your product. Okay, that's tip number one. Forget about the number of followers that you have. It is instead about the depth of engagement that you create. Number two, create content that feels more like a magazine rather than a catalog. I mean, think about it. A magazine like Bon Appetit has recipes and articles and product reviews and interviews and some ads, right? It is so much more compelling to read a Williams to to read a Bon Appetit magazine than it is to read a Williams Sonoma catalog. I always use this example because a Williams Sonoma catalog is just a listing of items to buy. So you want to follow that same principle when creating content for your account, right? Educate, inspire, motivate, connect with your audience way more often than you sell to them. We become deaf to sales posts. And if every post of yours is just a product shot asking your audience to purchase, you're going to get unfollowers every day. So instead on your Instagram feed, in your stories, showcase the lifestyle of your target audience and paint a picture of what their life would be like once they start connecting with and using your brand, okay? Got one tip left for Instagram. Tip number three, get your follows followers off of Instagram and onto your email list. I want you to imagine if Instagram shut down tomorrow and you were using it as your main sales channel, how would you continue to run your business? You've got to find a way to turn those leads into email subscribers. And Instagram is a great place to do that with a thoughtfully placed lead magnet and link to subscribe in your bio. So now before you guys just drop a link in your bio that says, Sign up for our email list and keep up to date with our news. I know like a bunch of you might go do that. Remember, that's not the best way to get subscribers. I mean, think about it yourself. When was the last time that you signed up for a brand's email list just to keep up to date with them? I mean, you've got to offer something juicy in return for that email address. So put some thought into your lead magnet, talk it up consistently in your feed and in your stories and track those conversion results. So if you're looking for more help with Instagram, we do talk about it in Retail Ready. I've got a future episode for you guys here on Food Biz Whiz, and I have another great resource for you guys. My friend Tyler McCall teaches an incredible course on Instagram, the Fan to Follower Society, and it's all about helping business owners, business entrepreneurs, use Instagram to grow their business. So you might remember in the last episode, I said I hired a business coach last year. It wasn't Tyler, but Tyler and I were in the same cohort. I took his Instagram class in 2018, and let me tell you, it is amazing. I'm going to link to that course in the show notes as well. And I'm just going to put it out here into... Uh, into the world that maybe I can convince Tyler to come on Food Biz Whiz and do an episode with us. I think that would be really cool. So Tyler, if you're listening, on the off chance that you're listening, come on Food Biz Whiz, please. Okay, two questions left. Two great questions left. So second to last question. 
how to leverage, how do I leverage online sales to a buyer at a grocery chain, a brick and mortar to get on their shelves? So how do I take my sales data from online and use it to get in brick and mortar stores? Okay, here is the deal. The buyer knows that your online sales doesn't, don't necessarily translate to in-store sales, but it does, that sales data does show that people are interested in your brand. So again, use this data in your pitch to the buyer. The most important thing is to create a connection between your audience and their audience, showing that the people who are buying from you online is a similar demographic as their in-store purchasers, right? You got to make that connection for them. So let's say, for example, that you are a seaweed snack company in Seattle and you have really great sales from your website to, surprisingly, to an audience in LA who is health-focused, vegan, and busy professionals, okay? Let's keep it simple there. So from your surveys and your Instagram engagement, you know that your audience keeps your kelp snacks in their desk drawer at work for a healthy vegan snack to munch on while they hit their midday slump. Can you picture this? I like have such a clear person in my mind. So you would take this information, you would compile it in a short email, or you would add it like really concisely to your sell sheet. And you would pitch to that buyer in LA, citing that your audience is similar, your audience online is similar to their audience in person. In this case, health forward, cares about animal rights, cares about thoughtful sourcing, is upper class and prioritizes spending on food, right? And lives in the LA area. You would create a clear connection between your current audience and their current audience and tell them some impressive sales stats and traction that you have online. So craft that pitch that makes it a no-brainer for the buyer to understand the positive impact that you would have on their category. Whew, okay. Finally, this brings us to the last question of the episode. If this question doesn't pertain to you, I would be shocked. But if it doesn't and you're tuning out now, before you go, let me know how you like this episode. Send me a DM, send me an email, connect with me on Facebook, join our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group. I want to know if you like this rapid style, ask me anything episode, okay? So here is the very last one. And like I said, I'd be shocked if it doesn't relate to all of you. How do I get a call back from a buyer? So this might be the most common question that I received. This one and then the Instagram one before it. So I get it. You drop off samples, you call the buyers, you reach out over email, and you still get nothing. The short of it is that you aren't getting a call back because your pitch hasn't convinced the buyer that they need your product. That's all there is to it. Buyers are busy. You will hear me say this time and time again. This is like my mantra. Unless you have a pitch that is totally, undeniably rock solid, which objectively shows how your product is going to be a win for your category, it is not worth that buyer's time to pursue your brand. So that might sound like tough love, and it is. You've got to understand that buyers are pursued by dozens of brands week in and week out, and unless you are 100% dialed in, they're going to move to the next more professional brand in their inbox. 
So the sooner you realize this, the sooner you perfect your pitch, the faster you'll get calls back and actually get on shelves. I mean, I see this all the time in Retail Ready. My students think that they're presenting as professional, and then their minds are blown away once we change up their strategy and they actually see results. It's awe-inspiring to watch. Okay, so think about that tough love, right? You have to have that undeniably undeniably like rock-solid pitch, which shows how your brand is going to help that buyer achieve their goals. Okay, my whizzes, that is what I have for you today. How did you like that rapid fire episode? I hope you found a few gems of inspiration in there and it gave you lots to think about. So I'm so curious, was it helpful? Did you like it? Did you like this style? Can you relate to the questions that your fellow food business owners asked? Like I said, let me know by sending me a DM, commenting on my post on Instagram, continuing the conversation with me over in our Food Biz Wiz Facebook group, however you want to get in touch. I am all ears. So from here, keep your eyes peeled next week for one of my favorite episodes of the podcast so far. I am releasing an episode with Cynthia Samanian of Hidden Rhythm, who is my go-to resource for all things related to in person marketing for food brands, that face-to-face interaction with your consumer. She's joining me in conversation about creating memorable experiences for your audiences, ensuring you're connecting with the right people, and using experiential marketing to create loyal fans and purchasers from your food biz, for your food biz. It is such a good one, and you guys are going to love it. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening, sharing, tagging me in your posts as we celebrate season two of Food Biz Whiz. Until next week, take care and stay busy. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Whiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com. That's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z.com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.